my new life goal is to file a freedom of information request on behalf of this podcast. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't I don't know what for. I don't know yes. how we could do it. I don't know what the context would be, but that is my new life goal. Hello, welcome to Tencent Takes, the podcast where we risk a lot of frostbite on our sensitive bits, one issue at a time. <laughs> Jessica's <laughs> face on the video feed is very good right now. Don't worry, you'll understand the reference soon. Yes. My name is Mike Thompson, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, the snowy shepherdess herself, Jessica Frazier. Oh my goodness. Yeah, you like that? I am snowy sometimes. <laughs> a little <But> chilly. Te <laughs> technically, you are also a shepherdess now. You do have a lamb. There, you know what? Yes, there is a lamb in the home, which is such a strange thing to say. I was just telling Mike that the lamb's favorite thing is to jump on the couch. And she jumps on the couch and she kicks her little legs out. <laughs> and then she'll jump on the arm of the couch. Then she'll jump off of it. It's just very cute. <laughs> so. do, you ever, do you ever wonder, like what people think our lives are like when they hear these little snippets <laughs> and they've never met us. I kind of forget that we only have given them like bits and pieces. <laughs> I hope they right. fabricated like some sort of like magical land. It's not magical. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Uh, anyway, we do, three, uh, we do have three regular size goats as well. One of them yeah, is like fair. taller than like my hip. He's yeah. very tall. Meanwhile, Sarah and I just have, three dogs who maybe add up to the size of one regular dog maybe <laughs> maybe three dogs in a trench coat yeah exactly <laughs> well if you are new to the show the purpose of this podcast is to celebrate comic books in ways that are both fun and informative we like to look at the coolest weirdest and silliest moments as well as examine how they are woven into the larger fabric of pop culture and history and if you are enjoying the show so far and you want to help us grow, it's always a huge help if you would rate and or review us on Apple Podcasts, because despite what Apple likes to claim, that does actually help with discoverability. This week, we are checking out Bloodseed, which is a 90s extreme mashup of science fiction and pulp fantasy from some pretty big names in that era. But before we do so, Jessica, what is one cool thing that you've read or watched lately? So this is what I have been watching and what I am going to watch after we record well no i can't i got shit to do gosh darn it well anyway this is wah, what wah. i wish i would be watching after this i know i like i like how i just like promised to do a bunch of things and then i was like i'm gonna watch this show no you're not jessica <laughs> calm down such <laughs> <laughs> so is my life man adhd is so hard so <laughs> anyway parallels it's on disney plus it's hmm. such an interesting show. It's originally in French and it's dubbed into English like pretty well. Okay. It's about a gr and I should be watching it in French, but I've been lazy, so I should probably <laughs> revert over. Because like some of the littlest kids are played by people that are obviously not that age, and so it's like a little weird, right. you know what I mean? So anyway, it's about a group of kids who are hanging out in an abandoned like electricity outpost, it seems like they're really not supposed to be there, but it's like okay. in this forest. And so there's some sort of cosmic event. The power goes out. And when it flashes on again, two of the kids are like missing. They're just like 
not hmm. in this place anymore. And they have it locked. Like they they would have had to unlock it and like it's locked from the inside. And so and then one of the kids is like a full grown man. Like suddenly. Oh. Huh. Weird. Super weird, right? And so then he's like trying to go talk to his mom and he freaks her out because you know what I mean? So it's this whole yeah, big yeah. thing. So we also get the story for the other two quote unquote missing kids, mm-hmm. but in a different reality. So the other two kids had gone missing. Like in their reality, they were still there. The the other two kids that went missing in the first reality. Right. In the other reality, they weren't missing, but the other two kids were. Oh, weird. Okay. It was so weird. And so, and that was on top of another kid who had gone missing a few years earlier, but like wasn't even tied into all of this yet. Like they didn't even know that was involved. So I'm about four episodes into the show and it's really interesting. The adults in the town are trying out what seems to be like a large particle accelerator or something of that nature. Okay. And the anomaly happened when the generator knocked the power out. And so maybe that opened up a portal to a different dimension. It's a good combination of mystery, sci-fi, and time travel. And the characters are being really well developed. So I'm really excited to watch more of the show and figure out what's going on with these different dimensions that these kids seem to be dealing with. That sounds super cool, man. I haven't even heard of this. It was recommended to me on my, you know, what you should watch next to yeah. Disney. And I was like, mm, good call. You, hmm. The algorithm is algorithming, as they say. <laughs> good. So what about you? Uh, I am a basic bitch and we have been watching Echo on Disney+. Plus. Okay. So that is continuing the story of Maya Lopez, who was kind of like the breakout character from Hawkeye a couple of years ago. She is played by Alakwa Cox, and Alakwa Cox is great in the role. She is totally believable as this badass who feels both fragile and invincible at different times. For those of you who are not familiar, Maya Lopez is a Native American woman in Marvel continuity who is deaf, but in the comic book, she has the ability to basically perfectly mimic movement. They don't give her that in the TV show, but it's more along the lines of She's just a really hardcore badass and has had to overcome the difficulties of being both deaf and an amputee and a person of color. So this is like a really fun continuation of the story that was first started in Hawkeye, where she has seemingly killed the Kingpin, played by Vincent D'Onofrio, who, by the way, we all owe a major round of thanks to whoever cast him because Mm. he's amazing. But yeah, this one takes place in like Oklahoma. She goes home to her hometown, which is like Choctaw Indian country. And speaking of someone who loved the TV show Reservation Dogs, this feels kind of like what if Reservation Dogs was set in the MCU? And like Sarah and I were totally here for it. We've been watching the show with Sarah's son, but he is currently at his dad's. So we're waiting for him to come home to finish up the series. But all three of us like it for very different reasons. Like I'm digging it just because... It's kind of a fresh feeling superhero story. My stepson loves it because it's a ground level superhero story. And then Sarah is loving it because, again, it's kind of got that reservation dog sort of angle where it just it feels like something totally different than what we would normally watch. So, yeah, yeah, it's great. Very cool. I'm sure that Disney will flub the final episode like they have a habit of doing. But, you know, <laughs> I've, I've accepted that. The end of the Disney TV shows are typically kind of like a, an exercise and a little bit of disappointment, but otherwise it's a fun ride. 
There you go. Well, you know, they like to end on a low note, I guess. <laughs> they, they almost always do, man. It's really depressing. What do you say we start talking about Bloodseed? I really need you to explain what's happening in this comic. So please, let's I, tally forth. <laughs> man, I've read this thing like three times and I still don't feel like I got the full story, but... It didn't even help to like write it down because like sometimes no. that helps me. <laughs> a little, not much. <laughs> well, this will be fun. <laughs> okay, so Bloodseed. Bloodseed is a comic that I found recently when we were at our local shop. They usually put out kind of like little, you know, sets, runs, like, you know, kind of little collections of comics. They're typically like, oh, here's like issues one through five of something interesting you know, 10 bucks. This was right. issues one and two of two issues of Bloodseed for $4. And I saw the cover for this and I went, you son of a bitch, I'm in. This looks ridiculous. <laughs> Worth <laughs> and, it. <laughs> and the guy behind the desk was like, oh yeah, you like 90s extreme stuff. There is a, I don't think there's anything else that is more 90s extreme than this. And I was like, good, I'm, I'm here. So... <laughs> All right, so this was published by Frontier Comics, and that is a story unto itself because Frontier Comics was a sub-imprint of Marvel UK, and in order to fully understand and appreciate the story, we need to talk about Marvel UK. So (laughs) Marvel UK was naturally an arm of Marvel that got spun up in the 1970s to reprint stories for a British comic book market. And originally they were running on a weekly schedule rather than monthly and were putting out issues that were magazine size rather than the typical American six and a half by 10 and a quarter measurements. So like if you've ever seen British comics, they're like typically magazine sized issues. Right. So before this point in the seventies, Marvel had been licensing out their properties to other publishers, but then they decided to like do it themselves. So the imprint established a a pretty sizable foothold within a couple of years. And not long after the imprint started, the character Captain Britain debuted because Marvel wanted a hero specifically created for the UK market. And then Captain Britain was brought over to American audiences later on. And he's become a fairly significant character, you know, as part of like the Marvel 616 universe since then. Yeah. For most of the 70s, Marvel UK was actually pretty successful, but it started to decline towards the end of the decade. Stan Lee personally recruited a guy named Des Skin to basically revitalize the imprint. And he actually gave him near total freedom to do what he felt was needed. And oh, wow. yeah, like it's kind of wild. Like Skin is credited with starting up Doctor Who Weekly, which, you know, was a pretty big deal at the time. Yeah. And then he also launched what are called Marvel Pocket Books, which were basically softcover books that originally reprinted origin stories of Marvel heroes and then eventually included other stories as well, but they were, I don't know. They they were sort of like pocket sized trade paperbacks is my understanding, which, you know, feels like a pretty original thing for the time. And in spite of that, the eighties were still fairly rough and most of Marvel's comics across the pond didn't actually sell that well. In fact, most popular books from this imprint were licensed books based on properties like the real ghostbusters, my little pony and transformers. Okay. Yeah. So like, we never had a My Little Pony comic over here in the 80s, like in the US, but it was really yeah. popular in the UK of all things. Weird. Oh, man, I so, wish. Yeah. In fact, Transformers UK 
was especially huge. It was apparently selling over 200,000 copies a week at its height, and it ran for over 300 issues. Oh. Yeah. Wow. So it was like, and when I say like it ran for over 300 issues, you have to remember it was like a weekly, you know, occurrence. Right, but, right. Yeah. But still, but like, that's mean, a good still, run. Still, absolutely. Yeah. And Simon Furman was the writer on that book, and he would actually go on to take over the U.S. comic eventually because he was so successful in the U.K. And there are two runs on Transformers that are regarded as, like, especially important for the brand. So the first one is from Bob Budiansky, who is the guy who actually created the Transformers lore when Hasbro asked Marvel to do a comic for them. And then the second Mm. is Simon Furman. Like, a lot of his stuff is considered, like, massively important to, like, the large mythology of Transformers in general. Like, one of my favorite pieces, though, is that he actually introduced the character Death's Head to Marvel. And Death's Head is this time-traveling robot mercenary who has gone on to be, like, kind of a popular cult character in the mainstream Marvel universe. Apparently, Marvel UK liked the character so much that what they did was they they snuck a one-page strip into other comics featuring Death's Head because their deal was set up that any original characters introduced in Transformers UK would then become property of Hasbro. So they didn't want Hasbro to have the rights to this. Yeah. Okay. And then like after his run in Transformers, he, if I remember this right, he ends up like flying through space and he collides with the doctor's TARDIS. And then the doctor leaves him eventually on the fantastic four headquarters like on their roof. And that's like how he crosses over to the mainstream Marvel universe. It's wild. It's oh my just goodness. absolutely bonkers. So wow. anyway, we're eventually at some point, we're <sighs> going to do a death's head issue. <laughs> Great. It's going to be a Love thing. It. Looking um, forward to it. Yeah. But yeah, in 1988, the imprint started to put out us sized comics and that was to like varying degrees of success. It doesn't sound like even the more successful titles were like really home runs or anything, but like they did okay. Death said got his own series. There's another sci-fi comic called Dragon's Claws, which is pretty interesting. That's another one that I want to do an episode on eventually. There was okay. also a comic called Knights of Pendragon, and that mashed up Arthurian mythology with Marvel heroes. And that was like really good, but it only got about 18 issues, I think. I read Knights of Pendragon almost 20 years ago, and I remember really enjoying it. I think it had some some kind of horror vibes as well that felt pretty unique oh. because of how it wove in British folklore. Nice. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. And then one other thing to note, comics history kind of denotes this whole era as the British invasion. And this was when we had a number of now very high profile British creators really breaking into the US markets. We got creators like Alan Moore, Grant Morrison, Neil Gaiman. Dave McKean, Brian Bolland, and Dave Gibbons to just to name only a few of the people that we were getting. And they were earning like a ton of critical acclaim for the books that were being released over here. And that led to companies actively recruiting folks from the UK because suddenly we had like this well that they could draw from that were delivering stories that were a very, very well received and be selling well. Okay. However, by 1990, things were actually pretty dire over at Marvel UK And that's when a guy named Paul Neary took over as editor-in-chief, and he basically decided that they needed to take another run at the U.S. as a viable market. So Marvel UK started putting out books that were technically part of the 616 universe, but they were also kind of separate. The comics they started publishing were sort of cyberpunk in their vibes, but they were all linked by the central antagonist in the form of an evil... 
I don't know. I'm going to call it like a mega corporation. It's sort of like other evil Marvel groups, kind of like AIM or Hydra. But this one was called Miss Tech, Miss Dash, like tech. And it's a bunch of old dudes who are like hell bent on taking over the world and then running it in secret. But here was the important thing. The stories that were being told felt really fresh and very different. Mm. And these new books were initially a smash hit. Like, first of all, this was right in the middle of the speculation boom. So we were already getting like, you know, reprints for certain issues that had sold gangbusters. Like you and I got to go to Liam Sharp's farewell signing at Flying Colors over in Concord last year. And one Mm -hmm. of the issues that I brought for him to sign was a second printing of a Death's Head 2 issue. And he revealed he had never seen it before. Like he didn't even know it had been done. Wow. And then Joe Field, the owner of Flying Colors, and Liam were talking about it. And Joe was like, yeah, remember how we would get second or third printings of books that sold like 300,000 copies? Like, Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It was like pretty wild. Like, so it was, everybody was speculating on these books. And then this stuff was like really popular and weird and interesting. So it was just doing crazy business. And as a result, Marvel UK was writing a real high. Their books were selling like hotcakes. And then they decided to start up an imprint called Marvel Frontier Comics. The goal for this was apparently to create a Marvel counterpart to DC's Vertigo Comics lines, which were releasing mature stories. And so the imprint kicked off in mid-1993 and started releasing four-issue miniseries from a bunch of different creators. And here is the, the lineup of what was released by Frontier, okay? Okay, we, got Mo- we got Morgan Goth Immortalis, Dances with Demons, Children of the Voyager, and Bloodseed. Yes, all very <laughs> familiar and, you know, within the, the global consciousness. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I've heard some of them are really good. We'll talk about this later on. But I did find the solicitation for Bloodseed on the Marvel Wiki page. So I oh. want you to read this oh. out because the description doesn't really make it any less confusing. I'm excited about this. This offering for Marvel UK's Frontier line features a cover enhanced with gold ink. Bloodseed is programmed to deliver a genetic communication housed in his body. To do it, he'll have to fight his way through a savage land populated with every kind of deviant known to humanity. There was an exclamation point at the end of that. Yeah. Wow. So first of all... That was was intense. Yeah, like... I (laughs) went from zero to 60 real fast. I don't think we actually got any of that plot information. No. (laughs) From the comic. Thank you. I'm glad you said that because I was really questioning my understanding of like and reading comprehension. But but the other thing is they're like, they're talking about this cover enhanced with gold ink. And it's wild to me that that was the selling point because the cover just has like gold colored ink for the background. Like (laughs) it's. Somebody was what? like, what if we just use gel pens? <laughs> right. I mean, I'm a little sad that I didn't have this for Liam Sharp design because I would have been like, yeah, <laughs> like see how he reacted to it. But literally, oh. like I'm holding it up for you. It's literally just like mildly shiny gold ink for the background. Oh, it's nothing goodness. like like there's yeah, nothing. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Tell me you didn't pick that up because it had gold on it. No, like it's not shiny. It's like it's like it's not like a foil oh. gold. It's oh, just like it's just wow. literally okay, gold colored weird. ink. 
Yeah. Oh, that's strange. Oh, no, that's not impressive. No, there were several reasons that I picked this up, but not, but, but the gold <laughs> ink was not actually part of it, believe it or not. Oh, wow. This is a first. Yeah. yeah. Wow. If Mike, if, if it wasn't shiny enough to draw Mike's attention, it wasn't shiny enough. Exactly. Look, guys, I'm not going to pretend that I'm deep or that I have like excellent taste. <laughs> Come on. All right. So this brings us to the series in question, Bloodseed. So <laughs> here we are. There are two issues to this series. This is considered book one. So it's basically volume one of Bloodseed. And then we'll talk about what was going to happen after that. So Bloodseed number one was written by Paul Neary, penciled by Liam Sharp, inked by Cam Smith, and colored by Steve Whitaker. And also it was lettered by Ellie DeVille. So Paul Neary, as I said, was the editor-in-chief for Marvel UK at the time. Liam Sharp was one of the hottest artists at Marvel at this point because he had done Death's Head 2, which had become one of their best-selling series. Like the original miniseries did crazy business. And then he has talked on Twitter about how the ongoing series, when they launched it, he has said that it has sold. I've seen a couple of different claims. In one, he claimed that it sold over 500,000 copies. It was possibly up to a million Oh. You know, because like, again, this was the height of that boom. Right. Yeah. So they launched the series and it was like some of the biggest names from this studio that have been delivering some major hits for them. Okay. Yeah. And then <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if we really anticipated what we got. The first issue opens up on a naked man stoically struggling his way through a blizzard. He can't remember anything about who he is. He passes out in the snow, and then a flood of memories come to him as a dream. His name is Lysander, it's revealed. He used to be a king who ruled a fantastical land that is, it is called at times Utopia, and other times it's called Elysium, alongside his queen, Alicia. And when he comes to, he feels stronger, but then he's attacked out of nowhere by these strange kind of like Sasquatch ape men. They basically mop the floor with him, but then he's suddenly alone in the snow again. It's implied he's either hallucinating these things or he's reliving traumatic memories, but it's never really explained. Yeah. And then Lysander comes across a cave and steps inside because it's dry and warm, and it leads into a sprawling, massive cave system that houses some sort of like sci-fi ruins. He finds a gun, but he can't make it work. He doesn't know what it is. But immediately afterwards, he finds this huge pipe wrench and he declares that it's a weapon worthy of a king, which I kind of love. And I then he, too. yeah, he kind of ventures further. Lysander has visions first of a woman holding the lantern, and then he realizes it's a, a trick, a spell, unclear. But basically, it's being cast by a monster who's rocking one of those bioluminescent lures that we normally see on anglerfish. Once Lysander breaks free from the spell, the monster retreats, and then our hero comes across a bunch of monstrous humanoids attacking a creature that I can only describe as a giant pterodactyl. He thrashes these guys, and the pterodactyl then starts speaking to him telepathically. It tells him that he has some sort of like healing telekinesis, and it sounds like he is a genetically engineered being implanted with artificial memories. Lysander heals his new friend. The dinosaur gives him a lift across the landscape and tells him that his name is actually Bloodseed. The pterodactyl asks if Bloodseed will stay with him and his people, but Bloodseed refuses. And as a result, he is gifted a high-tech helmet and um, a loincloth, like our Speedo. I don't know exactly how to describe it, but it's high-tech. Yeah, I don't either. <laughs> oh, and there's also a cape before 
you know, the dinosaur just departs. Like he just, he literally just is like, all right, well, deuces, I'm out. <laughs> there is, there's then a brief interlude where a one-armed man in a cloak tells a group of demon men that he used to be a king, but now someone is approaching who could destroy him. So they need to find him. And then we cut back to Bloodseed, who's apparently been traveling and suddenly is ambushed by a giant robot who is then revealed by his helmet to be an illusion hiding the entrance to a high-tech rest station. Bloodseed starts plundering it and triggers some kind of holodeck program that provides a bunch of disjointed images and information that implies that this is a different planet than Earth and that he's part of some weird genetic seeding program. It then shifts to a vision of his queen, Alicia, and then multiple copies of her pop up and they're all begging him to come to bed, but he rejects this and then wanders off to find some kind of escape pod that he climbs into because he's suddenly attacked by a giant spider. The pod launches (laughs) and then it crashes and he climbs out and sees a strange alien structure right behind some sort of like a giant pool of water. And then the demon men from before are revealed to be spying on Bloodseed. And it turns out the guy with the cloak has some sort of psychic connection with them. The cloak dude commands them to drive Bloodseed into the pool where a massive tentacle grabs our hero and drags him under the surface. And we get a final panel of the cloak dude who reveals his face and he looks exactly like Bloodseed. He says that another of their kind took his arm before he took his life in exchange. He also says he'll kill you all if he must so that he can confront their destiny and that he will be the true blood seed. End scene. Dun, dun, dun. I guess. I guess. Yeah, it's a lot. (laughs) And then issue two was also plotted by Paul Neary and Cam Smith. Apparently Liam Sharp scripted this along with handling penciling duties Cam Smith also inked, and then Steve Whitaker did the coloring. And this issue opens like the last one did, but with one key difference. There's, again, a naked figure wandering through a frozen wasteland, but this time it's a woman. And we learn that her name is Alicia, implying that she is the queen from Bloodseed's memories. We then get back to Bloodseed, who is underwater and held in the grip of what I'm going to call a kaiju-sized octopus. He uses his psychic abilities to calm the monster, but when he resurfaces, he is captured by the mutants that his doppelganger was commanding in the last issue. Alicia finds a remote station tower and outfits herself with some pieces of armor and a cape, plus a sword, and then continues on her way. Bloodseed wakes up and is connected to some kind of high-tech torture machine and gets monologued at by his one-armed clone about how, I don't know, something about how he's like, physically weaker because of his missing arm, but he's also stronger because he understands how the fortress they're in works. By the way, I should note that like, these are basically like it's switching back every other page between Bloodseed and Alicia. It's, it's very jarring. Yes. Yeah. Now at this point, we don't really have a great sense of time, but some has passed. We are told that Alicia has been wandering through a high tech tunnel labyrinth for several days before it cuts back to Bloodseed, who wakes up after passing out like for his eighth or ninth time from the torture machine. He then remembers that giant octopus from earlier, and he summons it mentally, promising that it can sate its hunger in this room. And then it crashes through the floor, and we get a monologue saying that the monster killed Bloodseed's captor, but we don't actually really see it on the page. And then this is when Alicia finds Bloodseed in the chaos. She cuts her way through the bad guy's minions. She frees Bloodseed and they introduce themselves to each other. And basically she has the same memories of Bloodseed, except she was the ruler of Elysium, Mm -hmm. you know, and she had a king who she ruled alongside. 
And by the way, like in my copies of the comic, this whole sequence was out of order. We got like the two page oh. spread before like, you know, Alicia actually introduces herself to blood seed. So oh, I was just weird. like, what the fuck is going on? And then I realized it basically had been inserted oh, at the wrong point. Weird. Okay. Yeah. Now, after this, we get an interlude where we see a group of, I don't know, they're kind of like ape men working in another yeah. high tech facility and they're discussing what's going on. They refer to Bloodseed and Alicia as gene spawn and that the local captain needs to be warned that the two are approaching this area. Back to Bloodseed and Alicia. They're in another cave system full of ruins and they encounter a group of mutants who then bring the duo to the ape man in charge. He offers to deprogram them of their false memories, but when Bloodseed removes his helmet, it turns out that this guy is actually like activating some kind of mental trigger to force the two people to fight to the death. The final page reveals that this whole experiment has been a contract for the ape men. They are part of some group called the Gene Corp, and they were doing this as part of a deal with like spacefaring dinosaurs who want to reseed Earth. <laughs> to be continued. But that was a lie, it turns no. out. There was no continuation. What's even Yeah. No. What the fuck? Okay, that was such a fucking fever dream. <laughs> yeah. And then there was one more like kind of like comic story with Bloodseed. Immediately after this issue came out, there was an anthology comic called Marvel Frontier Comics Unlimited. And there is like a I want to say maybe an eight page story called Frozen Moment. Mm-hmm. Basically, Bloodseed slash Lysander is rescued from the frozen wasteland temporarily by a four-armed woman named Nepenthe. Nepenthe? I don't know. What do you think sounds better? I was trying to I was thinking I was trying to figure that out actually. It goes back to that thing that we've talked about before where it's like fantasy names and you're like, we journeyed to and we met right. her. Yeah. Exactly. Like, I don't know. Anyway. Nepenthe. Nepenthe, sure. Let's go with that. <laughs> And then Nepenthe reveals that there have been other races of blood seeds who slaughter each other until only one remains. The two plan to live together forever, but then she has a psychic dream of his destiny and mentally removes any memories of their time together before she puts him back in the snow because his future is so important. It's actually kind of a nice little interlude. It reminds me of like Odysseus and Circe, you know, when Odysseus like mm. in the middle of the Odyssey just takes a year to like strip someone other than his wife and hang out on an island that's like you know paradise but yeah right yeah it doesn't really add a lot of useful information to the narrative it's kind of like oh okay it's kind of a nice little moment but nothing especially like noteworthy yeah i agree and then we never found out what actually happened because frontier it turns out was launched right when the comics market imploded after the speculation bubble popped and since bloodseed launched right in the middle of all this it never saw completion There's a note at the back of issue two that the series was being, quote, rescheduled to allow the creative team the time they need to maintain the highest standards. As a result, they were going to do another volume of the comic sometime next year in 1994, but that didn't happen because in late 1993, the publisher canceled a bunch of their titles and they also axed the entire Frontier imprint. Mm -hmm. And then in 1994, Marvel UK just stopped publishing comics over here in the States They were just doing reprints on their home turf. And then European imprint Panini Comics acquired the Marvel UK license in late 1995. So Mm. now there is like one little kind of like, you know, coda to the story. Marvel recently put together a collection of all of the Frontier stories. and It's extremely affordable these days. I just ordered one for nine bucks. So maybe we'll find something else in there to cover. 
like, you know, for a future episode. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Very nice. So the rest of this discussion is going to be a little bit of a book club. I'm curious about your overall impressions of this comic. It was confusing. <laughs> it was yeah. it was a fever dream. It was confusing. The plot was really hard to follow. And it, it didn't didn't seem like this particular comic was pandering to my demographic. No. Know? Well, like, I mean, well, it was fine. We'll talk about it in a sec, but it reminded me a bit of there was a review from Roger Ebert a while ago about I think it was the movie The Brothers Bloom, where he's talking about how, you know, it's round and round and round it goes, where it's talking about kind of like how the plot keeps on twisting. And he's oh. like, and when it finally stops, we don't really care. <laughs> like Right. Oh yeah. And I was like, I, I kinda felt that way where I'm like, it's delivering this like very convoluted like plot line, which feels interesting, but I'm like, I don't know, man. I'm getting a little tired of like all the the weird serpentine twists and turns <laughs> yeah exactly like i i know you want me to feel empathy for this guy but i'm i'm having a real hard time with it at this point <laughs> yeah so i ended up actually picking up a copy of the marvel frontier collection which is kind of that omnibus collecting all the different frontier comics and the section for bloodseed has a full page intro written by liam sharp and liam sharp actually acknowledges that a this was the type of comic that he really wanted to work on because it was a mashup of 70s pulp, which he loves, as well as like 90s hyper extreme kind of aesthetics, for lack of a better term. You know, and he notes that there wasn't really anything like it at the time. But he also had this to say, which is that, quote, Bloodseed is not by any stretch the masterpiece that I would have liked it to be. It is clunky and confusing and inconsistent. The figure drawing is unsubtle, and that's being kind. And the environment is ill-established and a little amateur, but it retains a unique quality that still holds appeal. It was, after all, the kind of comic I had always dreamed of creating. And looking back, I am starkly aware of how lucky I was to be able to co-create such a title under the banner of the House of M. So, yeah, yeah like it sounds like he has the same critiques of the series that we do, which is that yeah, it's unique, it's interesting, but it's not quite at that level that it needs to be to be something that's truly amazing or memorable. But I actually really like that, that an artist can look back on something fondly while still noting its warts. Yeah. Yeah. It's really self-aware. So Yeah. And that leads to my next question, which is, how did you feel about the art? Because it felt to me like Liam Sharp was channeling Boris Vallejo and Barry Windsor Smith at different times. But it's also, because this is designed to be an adult book, there's a lot of nudity, both male and female. Yeah. And actually, Alicia, when we see her first, you know totally naked like the only actual nudity that we ever see are boobs yeah like but it's they, boobs they, page two like yeah. it is boobs page two yeah and then the other thing is that i actually really like this about alicia is that she is jacked like oh yeah like don't get me wrong i was looking at the images of her originally and i'm like mm, those aren't natural but <laughs> well no it, it, i mean it felt very much the 90s extreme vibe right there yeah. were so many muscles, so many boobs. It was easy enough to figure out what was happening in the action scenes, which isn't always the case in certain comics. So that's good, at least. Mm -hmm. But like, it's fine. Like, I wasn't overly thrilled with the art, but it was like, fine. You know what I mean? It was pretty sometimes, you know, and like the snow scenes were kind of interesting. Like, I, I did like what they were doing with like him walking through the snow and stuff. But, yeah. you know. Yeah, for me, it was interesting because Liam Sharp has always had 
this kind of like love affair with pulp art. Like mm. he, he has talked about like on his Facebook page and stuff like that. He has talked about doing a Conan story. And apparently he was uh, almost about to do one for Titan books recently. And then it fell apart at the last mm. minute. Oh, okay. A lot of his art really kind of caters to the styles that I mentioned of Boris Vallejo, who's that acclaimed fantasy artist. And then Barry Windsor Smith, who yeah. he was the one who first drew Conan in comic books. You know, it's interesting though, because sometimes the nudity feels like it's there just for the sake of nudity. And other times yeah. it, it feels like a really beautiful homage to these other artists, to these genres. Like when we get the two page spread of Alicia and of Lysander, where it's showing their kind of like their memories of their home right. kingdom and that they're they ruled. Like spread and... But it's, it's like beautiful. And then other times oh, I'm like, gorgeous. well, this feels a little Absolutely. slapdash. Yeah. 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 It's, you know, <laughs> it's a mixed bag. Right. The other thing is that Liam Sharp is, I still think, one of the best artists in comic books. And it's yeah, really interesting absolutely. to see him at this earlier stage of his career starting mm. to do stuff that you see him doing now, like with a lot more refinement after 30 years, you know? Right. Right. Like, so on that note, did like, did the nudity in the comic bother you? Did you care about it really? Like, I don't particularly care about the nudity. It didn't bother me per se. But as I mentioned, like, it was very clear that this comic wasn't made for me. Even yeah. as someone who loves the female form, it felt very much like a male power and sexual fantasy. Like, even the way that the internal thoughts were written, there were mm -hmm. a lot of terms like throbbing and pulsating and things yeah. that that made it feel very sexually charged, even when it didn't seem strictly necessary to the story. Yeah. And other times it, you know, it felt fine. Like I didn't have a problem with it, but like half the time right. I was like, oh, so you're just catering to an audience of like teenage boys. Like that's what it felt right, like. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I don't know. I kind of waffle on it because there are times where I'm like, I think this is great and I really like this. And other times where I'm like, I don't really care. I'm like, why does she only get a cape to cover up her boobs and we still get under boob? Um, okay. Like, yeah, and still the full like full nipple basically. Yeah, it not it even a cloth, for, not even enough cloth for nipple coverage. That's what right. women get. Yeah, <laughs> fuck pockets. We don't even get nipple coverage. <laughs> I will never forget. I worked with this doofus at a game studio where I was a writer, and he was like, "Oh no, well you know, like I really appreciate that." that we, you know, cater to both male and female audiences because we show a lot of half naked men as well as half naked women. And me and one of the community managers had to like sit there and be like, no, like we need to sit down and explain the nature of the male gaze and how there is both a power fantasy and a sexual fantasy. Mm -hmm. And okay. <laughs> like, mm. oh my gosh. But yeah. Break it the, down. I mean, the overall vibe of this book is, is fairly unique. It's like a mix of low fantasy, which is, less magical and mythic elements and then like hard sci-fi like you know it's it's a, it's a mashup yeah. that we don't really see a lot did you enjoy that did you think it worked i mean i'm a big dork so i do like something that mixes fantasy and sci-fi as they are two of my favorite genres mm -hmm. but honestly this didn't quite feel like it worked for me personally and maybe it was just yeah. the fact that it was incredibly confusing so following the plot took precedence over thinking too deeply about like how the genres were mixing. I I'm kind of with you. I think that the breadcrumbs that they were laying were really interesting. 
Right. But we never got to see the full payoff of that. No. And I was just like, this is like really fascinating to me, but I feel like this is a really slow burn and it's really mm-hmm. ambitious that they launched this as like, you know, a premier title that they were assuming was going to sell well. I don't know. Yeah. So as we mentioned earlier, it took me a couple of rereads to actually get a good grasp about what was going on in this comic. Like, yeah, I kind of liked the unfolding mystery around Bloodseed's identity, but it's clear that we were meant to receive some big reveals or plot points starting mm-hmm. around issue three. So how confused were you by all the cascading plot points that we got up to this point? There had to be some other reveals. Like oh, there yeah. had to be something written up because there was way too much that was set up or at least like it, it did feel that way Yeah, for that not to have been the intention. So to answer your question, I was incredibly confused. Like I mentioned, mm. I, I only chose to read it the one time. Yeah. I probably should have read it again because there was a lot I didn't follow or understand, but you you summed it up nicely, so thanks for that. <laughs> I was I was still confused even after you summed it up, but that's okay. No problem. Um, I was happy to jump I... on that grenade. <laughs> oh, yeah, so I would trade off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I you know, I honestly I do think some of that had to do with the inner monologue. Mm-hmm. And some of it had to do with cramming a lot of lore into the first comic, especially. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really curious about where this was going. Like, I, yeah. I think it was an interesting concept. I don't think it was bad. Like, I'm not going right. to say that this was a bad comic. I think it was very interesting. No. Right. Well, you've certainly read way worse comics for the show. <laughs> we have read worse comics for sure. <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, it feels like it is a comic that is not accessible to a casual reader. I feel like there were homages to things that I definitely missed. If I had been buying this off the shelves at the time, I'm not sure that I would have been interested in coming back either. That's incredibly fair. Even with the nudity, you know. Fair enough. I think there was just too much where we were just all sort of sitting there going, well, what is going on? Like, you're giving us all these mysteries without solving any of the other ones. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, yeah. 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 Well, if the series hadn't ended prematurely, like, would you have been interested to see where it went from here? Marginally? <laughs> Maybe. Like, <laughs> like, I did want to figure out who these beings were like that we're creating like the blood seed and to like figure out what that actually means in this lore and like right but i will absolutely be fine living my life without these answers yeah i'll be okay yeah exactly (laughs) i'm I'm a little sad that we didn't get like you know the complete story but at the same time i'm not that sad i'm like yeah right Okay, it's fine. Like, I like I would have. I yeah, sure. If if the if the third one just like popped out and it was like this is the third and final and we've wrapped everything up so nicely, mm-hmm. you know, sure, sure, I'll check it out. Yeah, casual. <laughs> Not going to pay a lot of money for it. No, exactly. Like, I'm really glad that I only paid four dollars for these issues. So it's fine. <laughs> but you know, that said, you can actually find a lot of the stuff from Marvel UK in the dollar bins these days. Like, I routinely come across them, like at all sorts of shops and there's okay. some really cool stuff in there, man. Like, I don't know. We should probably do some other Marvel UK stuff at some point. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. Well, before we uh, move on, do you have any final thoughts about blood seed? Well, only that I, I 
think they could have accomplished the same storyline without the very obvious male gazy nudity. Yeah. Like I said, it didn't bother me necessarily, but it also didn't feel like it added anything to the comic. It felt like it was just being done for 90 shock value, which, yeah. thank goodness, we're over that for the most part. For the most part. society. Yeah. Yeah, I actually was thinking about it like earlier today, and I'm like, man, it would have actually worked, I think, a lot better if we had seen them getting like fully clothed. Like, you know. Yeah. Like, because they're going through all these ruins, they're picking up stuff. I think it would have actually worked really well if they had picked up like full armor and stuff like that, because the helmet the Bloodseed had, it's called like a helmet of truth, and it'll sit there and basically, you know, tell him when like certain things are holograms or illusions or something like that, which was. I don't know. Kind of interesting. But yeah. Yeah. But like know. also like he was like they were walking through the snow for most of the comic. Like give these poor people some freaking shoes. Yeah, exactly. Like come on. Well, you know, that's why they go into the caves cuz it's warm and dry. Like mm-hmm. God. Yeah, it it's uh it doesn't hold up to a lot of scrutiny. Yeah, not enough Burt's Bees in the world for those chapped asses. No. My final thought about this is how the backstory for everything around this was kind of like more fascinating than I expected it to be. And Mm -hmm. what was particularly interesting was the idea that this was going to be Marvel's competition for Vertigo. And I'm like, oh, sure. I'm like, boys, come on. Like, (laughs) it, it was opting to deliver, you know, in quotes, mature comic books, but not in any real meaningful way. They were just using sex and violence to sell stuff rather than thoughtful, intelligent, dark stories that we were getting from stuff like Sandman or Hellblazer or Lucifer or the books of magic or a dozen other books that were coming out at the same time from Vertigo. Like it feels like the wish version of Vertigo. And I don't know, maybe the other stories will be better. We'll have to find out. But like, it reminds me of how certain game developers will sit there and totally like imitate other successful games and then push them out the door to cash in on that success. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's serving up some Zynga Farmville vibes. Oh, no. Yes. Farmville. Oh, my God. My mom used to be obsessed with Farmville. I had to physically like call my mom and tell her to stop trying to send me presents on Farmville. That was such a thing, because man. She was spamming me so hard. That that actually led to a lot of changes in Facebook privacy. Like, Oh. Yeah. Speaking of someone that covered those games at their height of popularity, yeah. I can tell you all about that. Oof, yeah. That was a whole thing. It was a whole thing. <laughs> anyway, what do you say we move on to Brain Wrinkles? Let's go. All right, so we are now at Brain Wrinkles, which is the portion of the show where we discuss one thing that is comics or comics adjacent that has just been stuck in our head for the last couple of days. So, Jessica, why don't you kick us off? I'm going to start with the only sentence that I wrote for this section, which is that merchandise resellers can go suck a dick. I I I mean mean that with my whole chest. (laughs) Like... I am so tired of people ruining everything because they're greedy and they want to go resell it on the internet. And I'm talking about everything. I'm talking about everything. Like it feels like it's gotten so much worse since COVID. It's yeah. The commodity hoarding is at an all time high and people are just trying to like make an extra buck. It's really, yeah. 
it's fascinating. And it's also very disheartening. Like one of the last times I was at Disneyland, I was mm-hmm. so dismayed to see people walking through with boxes and boxes of merchandise that they had very obviously just bought from Disney. Yeah. And, and then I, they're going to go resell it on eBay or something like that. Exactly. And it's like, well, what about the, what about us? Like, what about the people who are here and we want to yeah. buy that thing and you guys have just sold out of it. Yeah. Like what's that's, you know, and now you're going to sell it at like what twice as expensive as I would have gotten it in the already expensive park. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, when Dungeons and Dragons came out in the movie theater, they had a, a D20 popcorn yep. holder and mm-hmm. I really wanted to buy one, but they were only sold yeah. at the AMC theaters. And then basically resellers came in and just bought them all out. Like, so I asked my friend if he could swing by the theater and see if they had any. He was like, yeah, I swung by. They were totally sold out. I was like, fuck. And yeah, you know, then they were getting, so I think they were like 30 bucks originally. And all of a sudden they were going for like 150 on eBay. I was like, right. fuck this. I'm not buying this. It's awful. And it's like, these aren't collector's items. Like, I don't know. Like not everything can be a collector's item. Like we've talked about a few times. <laughs> yeah. Like something needs to be special. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, otherwise it's going to be fucking beanie babies all over again. You're just going to have a bunch of worthless shit in your house. Like, yeah. So it just, it's something that's been like definitely wrinkling my brain recently. And I really wish that people would just let people enjoy things and stop making it about making a buck off of the next person. It's just gross. It's disgusting. And late stage capitalism needs to die. Let's burn it all down. So... (laughs) It's almost like there's a theme to our show. <laughs> My God, I just want to, yeah, burn it all down. Oh man, so, and this is somebody. This is this is from somebody who survived wildfire, so I know yeah. a thing or two about burning <laughs> down. <laughs> God. Oh man, I don't take that. I don't say that lightly. <laughs> no, you don't. Oh man. Well, what about you? Uh, I have been thinking about the ephemeral nature of digital media because Ah, yes, I have opinions. Yeah. Lately we have seen digital media starting to get vanished from platforms in different ways. And it turns out that due to some licensing rights dispute between Sony and Warner brothers discovery, it sounds like pretty much all of kind of like the discovery channel programming, like thousand pound sisters or 90 day fiance, Mm. that sort of stuff is no longer available on that platform. And I don't mean like it's not available to purchase. I mean, like even if you had downloaded episodes and put them on your PlayStation hardware, you could no longer watch it. It was removed because you don't actually own that content that you are digitally purchasing. So that has made me start thinking real hard about maybe I need to start buying DVDs and Blu-rays again. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm real glad that I already own Star Trek Deep Space Nine on DVD because there's now talk about Warner Brothers Discovery merging with Paramount, which would be an absolute disaster. But yeah, it's something that makes me real nervous. But also I like owning physical media. Like, I, I do don't too. get me wrong, I enjoy digital media too, but, yeah. but physical media, there there's something kind of reassuring where you're like, well, no, you can't take this away from me. I own this. Yeah. You know? All I have to do is have power and I'm, I'm good to go. Yeah. Yeah. So when Sarah and I moved into this house, one of the things we did was we went through our DVD and Blu-ray collection and our DVDs, we 
like we got rid of some, but then we put a lot into like, you know, binders and stuff like that. And there were a couple of cases that I was like, no, like, here's the thing. Like we can't rebuy this. Like we need to, we need to save this. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, Warner brothers back in the nineties, they were doing like the cardboard that would snap together as opposed to like the generic DVD case that would just close together and all that. And you could swap out the jackets. Yeah. So. But yeah, I don't know. It makes me real sad, actually, because like when you go into like Target or Best Buy, they don't have like a huge selection of physical media anymore. Right. And I'm like, mm, OK, well, maybe that's going to come back. I don't know. We'll see. Maybe. Hopefully. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. And then the other thing is that, like, as we've talked about numerous times on this show, a lot of times licensed comics just vanish. Like you can't read them on the, the typical digital platforms because the rights have gotten convoluted. And yeah. You know, as a result, it's, you know, it's really nice to actually have those physical copies that you can go back and read. Right. So, exactly. Because those books that have Death's Head crashing into Doctor Who's TARDIS now, you can't actually get. Well, and not to be too, like, gloom and doom about things, but we're so fucked if we can't use computers for some reason. Oh, yeah. Or the 100%. We're so fucked. We're so fucked. Like, yeah, yeah. So, good good on you not that i think that's gonna happen but i have really intrusive thoughts yeah fair. <laughs> so these are things i think about a lot <laughs> okay well that is it for us today we will be back next week with another dollar bin discovery and then after that we'll have another deep dive do we actually know what we're talking about next time is that you are you hosting is this hyper i think hyper thick is going to be the next one okay cool i'm excited about that because that looks batshit it's so wacky yeah, yeah. I, I don't know yet what it's about. I haven't even opened them yet. So this is a journey we'll all go on together. Oh, man. My I'll have my shit ready. together by then. Probably. <laughs> Maybe. No promises. <laughs> no, it'll be great. But yeah. So until then, stay safe out there and we will see you in the stacks. Thanks for listening to Tencent Takes. Accessibility is important to us. So text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website. This episode was hosted by Jessica Frazier and Mike Thompson, written by Mike Thompson and edited by Jessica Frazier. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. Our credits and transition music is Pursuit of Life by Evan McDonald and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank, who you can find at lookmomdraws.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to TenCentTakes.com or shoot an email to TenCentTakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, or now. The official podcast account is TenCentTakes, all one word. Jessica is Jessica Witha, and Jessica spelled with a K. And Mike is Van Sau, V-A-N-S-A-U. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, Blue Sky, and Hive. A full list of our socials will be listed in the show notes. You can also send us mail now. We are at P.O. Box 940 in Pengrove, California, 94951. And Pengrove is spelled P-E-N-N-G-R-O-V-E. Send us stuff. (laughs) If you'd like to support us, be sure to download, rate, and review wherever you listen. Stay safe out.